Welcome to this uh, episode of Revolution and Ideology. I am Jared. And I am Nick. And in this episode, we are hoping to establish the history of the state. Uh, as all of you know, if you've been following the, the prior episodes, you've been on a ride with us as we begin to explore the ideas or the possibilities of can stateless societies exist uh, again, because they have, and if they can, how do we get there? And so far, we've kind of gone back in time and had discussions regarding human nature and then defined society and then defined a state. And, and, and that's what we've been doing thus far. And now we're going to talk uh, super briefly over this episode and potentially the second one, depending on how far we get today, uh, about the history of the state, or at least an overly and admittedly so as a historian, generalized view of the history of the state, right? So we're, we're not going to go into super great detail and probably not going to dig in heavily into primary sources along or anything along those lines. We are going to make some generalizations, though. Um, and especially since we're, uh, again, a historian and a sociologist here, we are going to draw from prior archaeologists and anthropologists for some of the transition period. Um, so let's just jump right in and kind of get into this as far as the history of the state. We've already introduced our listeners, just like we would our class, to the thoughts of numerous uh, theories on why people or how status and stratification came into being. And the most common one that we still use in class, even though there is contestation from anthropologists like David Graeber, follows that line of thinking of, of our boy J.J. Rousseau, that there was this time period circa ten to 12,000 years ago known as the Neolithic Revolution, or I think he may have even referred to it more, more, more directly as like an agricultural revolution. Um, but, but whatever we choose to call it, many people still point to this time period as an important transition in the way humans organized. Even if we follow on what Graeber was saying, that before that, uh, humans in different places, to use his term, oscillated between more egalitarian, egalitarian circular-based societies and um, hierarchical-based societies, there still was the existence of both, right? And when we look at the Neolithic Revolution, particularly in the four places that we're going to start with that everybody learns about, <clears throat> I want to say in seventh grade uh, you know, world history class, Egypt, Mesopotamia, India, and, and China, that we see a clear trajectory presented um, that we're still on. And, and that's one thing that I don't, even when we talked about Graeber, that's one thing I still couldn't fully get on board with. Like I get that he was trying to be optimistic, like it doesn't always have to be that way. And that's why it's good to look at possibilities where we went back and forth between hierarchy and more egalitarianism. But again, I, I kind of live in the material world. I don't kind of, I do. And from what I see this point on Neolithic revolution, we see a, a very clear trajectory of state establishment and hierarchy. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So again, let's talk about this. How does this begin? And and real quickly, I'm going to ask Nick, as our sociologist here, um, I think it's important to discuss one of the first distinctions we see regarding status is in gender and how we moved in many of these societies from matrilineal to patriarchal and patrilineal ways of organizing ourselves. So I'm going to give him just a few minutes so he can briefly explain uh, at least some of the theories he knows as to how that, that came into being. Theories that we that I discuss in class uh, simplistically to help people understand sort of how gender stratification uh, resulted in societies. Uh, that's not to say that these are the only three or that these are the one of these three is definitively the answer, but these are the main three that help people get a general understanding of how this developed. 
The first one has to do with the simple biological fact that women are the ones that must carry and give birth to the child, which means that a division of labor resulted uh, from that fact because the men became the hunters because they were able to travel away from the settlement for longer periods of time. Um, and I say in my classes, like, no matter how badass of a pregnant woman you've ever seen, she is not chasing down a gazelle. Like, that is not going to happen. Um, so the simple fact also that infant mortality was so high that it's possible that women of, let's use like this generalized hunter-gatherer, quote-unquote, women of the hunter-gatherer eras would be pregnant, nursing, or caring for young children, or all three at the same time. So just out of physical necessity, it was the men who were the ones that went off and hunted and the women that stayed back in the settlement and gathered, etc., took care of what was going on there and the children. So that's sort of one of the theories for the origin of division of labor based on gender. And status associated to hunting then led to this inequality between the two genders. But it is important to note that until, and again, this fluctuates depending on where in the world we're talking about and what material circumstances people were experiencing. It's important to note that in societies that remained more gatherer heavy for their calories, that the matrilineal lines remained stronger and that it was the women, the matrons, that held a lot of decision-making power. They would even be the ones oftentimes responsible for selecting the males that would go out and represent the will of the people. So, And they would actually then have to come back and answer to uh, those matrons. And when I say the will of the people, that means in terms of trade or they basically – they are. They're literally representing uh, uh, the we of that society to the outside world, right? Uh, I'll use a Native American reference in this case, right? The women held the power of what is called the clearing or the village and the men held the power of the wilderness, right? So I think that's important to understand is that there's – even though there is a division in perhaps what people were doing – there's not a clear distinction into as far as who has coercive power in these societies before we get to clear examples during this Neolithic revolution. I call this the hand-to-hand -hand combat theory. And it's a theory that as communities started to interact with each other, it was really the members of the communities that were out on the quote-unquote frontier, the fringes of their settlements, and these, by nature of what I just discussed, would always be the men. The men were interacting with other men, and as conflict would break out over hunting territories, resources, etc., the men would be the ones that took part in this hand-to-hand -hand combat. You can also, I refer to this as the testosterone theory, that in general, of course, this isn't always the case, I would be the sociologist in me would be the first to point this out. But in general, especially at this time, men biologically having more testosterone on average are bigger, faster, stronger, etc. than the average uh, woman. So they would be the ones that would be more valued in the hand-to-hand -hand combat. And then as a result of this conflict, and this is a huge generalization, obviously over thousands of years and the entire globe, but the women themselves would become the prize for who would ever would win that combat because whatever group of men won that battle, they would assimilate the other members of the other community and the women would quote unquote become theirs. So they were the prize sort of to be fought after in this conflict as it developed. So one of the most important things that also occurs during this time is during this Neolithic revolution, without going into great detail, because I think most of our listeners as well as our students kind of know this, is 
we became so good at manipulating the material world around us because at this point we had spent the better part of, of tens of thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of years observing, right? That's how we learned. And we knew what the growing seasons were. We knew if we were a coastal uh, uh, group, we knew the, the cycle of the tides. We knew the cycle of the seasons. We knew the migratory patterns of animals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And slowly but surely, we became so good at observing that we began to manipulate, sometimes in small scale, sometimes in large scale. But we know in these four regions that are now famous for birthing the very loaded and term I hate civilization, right? Because they were along these great river systems in Egypt, along the Nile River system and into the Delta. And of course, in Mesopotamia, everyone knows of the Tigris and Euphrates. And in India, it begins in the Indus and spreads to the Ganges. And of course, the Yellow and the Yangtze in China. Regardless, it's not just the river systems. It's the, of course, ability for humans to use those river systems and what they assumed was the predictability of flood patterns and rainy seasons and so on and so forth to begin to uh, uh, get better at growing, at growing things. And so farming, small-scale farming became a thing. And of course, it's not just agriculture. We know what comes along with it, sedentism. So we get a little bit more free time and eventually surplus. And all these other things, we slowly begin to domesticate animals, sometimes willingly, like uh, bovines, and sometimes uh, it just happens by uh, happenstance, right? Cats just start showing up to help us uh, protect our grain silos, and that all happens. I don't have to go into a lot of great detail here, but what I want to emphasize is this process is not overnight. It's taught as a revolution, which is a problematic term in and of itself. Like, we think of revolutions as, like, quick and they just happen and, you know, it's, 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 it's a paradigm shift. Well, this is a paradigm shift, but not a paradigm shift that happens overnight. This is a paradigm shift that, that again, if we're estimating starts between twelve and 10,000 BCE, really does not find its full cycle until around 3-ish thousand BCE in all of those places with the establishment of these states, these kingdoms. So that, I mean, that's, that's what, eight to nine to thousand thousand years of development and time. And again, to use Graeber's term, oscillation between perhaps um, stateless and restate societies, right? So again, it's not an overnight process, but it is important to understand that in those regions, we see clear examples of establishment of state all around that time period, somewhere between two to 4,000 BCE, right? In Egypt, we've got an old kingdom. And in Mesopotamia, we have these establishment of these city-states like Ur and Uruk and, and, and Sumer. And, and then, of course, we've got Mohenjo-Daro, which Graeber uses as an example in, in the uh, Indus Valley. Uh, and then, of course, it's overrun potentially by the Aryan migration. And, and in China, we have the establishment of, of, of lineage and dynasties. All of them, of course, at this point now following uh, patrilineal and patriarchal lines. And that's an important um, thing that we have to talk about. So real quickly, um, yeah, I don't need to explain it. Real quickly, we were able to generate surplus. Every, all of our listeners, all of our students know what surplus was. We got good at growing things and, and we eventually created more than we needed which is not something a lot of hunter-gatherer societies would want. You didn't want to create more than you needed because it would be hard to preserve it. You certainly didn't want to have to carry it around if you're migrating. Like So those are things you would actually not want. But once we become more sedentary, our populations begin to grow because we have the surplus. In addition to, this, to, to using surplus to grow a population, surplus can be used for a couple of other, other important things. First and foremost, um, if you control the production and then storage of surplus – uh, during times of, of famine or flood or war or some other disaster um, and your society, for whatever reason, is not as productive as it used to be or whatever it should be, 
uh, those who control the surplus literally in those time periods can determine who lives and who dies, right? Um, so that actually gives them power. The other important thing is um, surplus can also be used to achieve status. So we're going to talk about how in just a second, but I want to kind of finish up this idea of how first and foremost, males tended to claim the authority over the development of surplus rather than females. Because now again, hunting is important still. It, it never really goes fully away, but technically now a lot of the men are hanging out in these communities, um, in these places around the world and they're becoming farmers, which is a little – I don't want to insinuate that, that farming is not physical labor, but it's a different kind of physical labor than, than hunting, right? Maybe less endurance. I won't – you know what? Let's not bullshit. I don't do either of those things, so I won't pretend to know which one's more difficult. I'm just assuming. The one important thing here is that the farmers are around more than the hunters, and that's one of the important things. And they understand the the, the, the power of the surplus. Well, prior to this, women held a lot of sway in deciding how resources would be distributed in hunter-gatherer communities because they were literally the ones that were responsible for reproducing life, reproducing that society. So they had a lot of responsibility, and so they should have the right to determine how resources were distributed. Especially in more gathering societies, not only do they uh, give give life, they are the ones most responsible for sustaining life because, again, they sustain literally, of course, children uh, uh, through breast milk. But then even beyond that, if they are gathering, they're providing the lion's share of calories for that society as well. So they get to determine how best to distribute resources. Well, as men begin to have a little bit more status because of hunting, um, we have to understand that they are able to use their skills, the skills garnered over time that, that Nick talked about maybe regarding hand-to-hand -hand combat and, of course, in regards to hunting becoming literal killers, they began to use these skills to coerce their way and begin to take surplus. Um, why would they do that? Well, surplus had status attached to it. And one of the examples I like to use in classes, and we're going to make up crops here. So if anyone's listening and knows that they didn't grow something in the region I'm talking about, that's cool. I'm, I'm here to tell you that, that I'm just using these as hypotheticals. But let's pretend in 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 these Egyptian societies, as before, you know, they're they're birthing what would become the old kingdom. They are growing uh, rice. Let's let's use rice as the example. And in Mesopotamia, they have eventually been able to uh, grow olives. Um, and they're so good at you at being able to manipulate the material world now that they have more olives than they need in Mesopotamia and more rice than they need in Egypt. And we know from what Nick already told us on theories of gender stratification that it would be guys that would be then sent out with this extra surplus or out into the, into the world and have some sort of uh, representative contact with these other cultures. At some point, they are going to come into contact with something new or novel, and we as humans really enjoy the new or the novel, and eventually that surplus will be exchanged. Well, here's some surplus rice for your surplus olives. Uh, again, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, uh, thousands of years of development. But regardless, once that Egyptian, and we'll use him as the example, that Egyptian a representative, and eventually we'll call him a traitor, comes back with that first set of olives to his community, we have to understand what immediately happens. It's, 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 it's instantly something new and novel for the whole community to enjoy and embrace. And they will come up to him and they'll ask him questions and they'll be curious and and honestly, he feels special for a little bit. And that's a feeling he wants to hold on to just because of the novelty of these olives. It's not unlike the child in middle school who gets the newest phone first. And in the lunchroom, that person is the one that all the kids want to talk to. Maybe it's only for 10 minutes. Maybe it's not even 10 minutes. Maybe, maybe it's five minutes. But that, that kid likes that feeling. 
And that feeling becomes status over time. Again, and it's always tied to something material at first, at first. So, and the same thing's happening back in Mesopotamia when he brings back that first load of rice, which again, that's a, probably a poor example. They, they had rice in Mesopotamia, but, but, but the listeners get the point here. Now, as that feeling becomes more and more, the more you bring back, the less people are going to be impressed with you. So you're going to start to think of new and different ways to try and achieve that feeling more often. And we know in modern consumptive habits, like you're going to have to keep consuming more. It's almost like a drug, right? The dopamine is a little bit less every time and, and you're going to need to do more and more to achieve that feeling. Well, of course, to make sure that happens and to limit the competition of other maybe Egyptian traders going out and finding something different, maybe instead of olives, they go south and find yams or something along those lines, you're going to want to limit that. And that's where that competition comes into play. So first, the competition needs to be eliminated regarding female distribution of resources. They use force to do that initially. They then back it with stories, but we're not quite to those yet. Secondly, they will then use force with it with each other to ensure that they are the ones that are able to bring up the bring back the novel now status related surplus. And of course, we know how that works. It's either the biggest, the strongest or the most intelligent, the one that can out strategize the others that slowly but surely is going to force uh, eventually the other men to help him in his specific quest to achieve that feeling. They will become subservient to him and there's not much they can do about it because again, he is either bigger stronger or more intelligent than them and that's where we see this status established in its ultimate aim which will eventually be the establishment of state and we see that happen in all four of those regions that we talked about egypt mesopotamia uh india and um china so i'm going to pause for a second because that was like a whole lot there what do you think of that like it's just a theory it's overly generalized but what do you think reading that we did and you even mentioned the fact that the use of the term revolution here like is so yeah erroneous that's basically my main critique is that even trying to tell any story of how 10,000 years developed right. is such a generalization that like it's impossible yeah. like there's no way that what you described is what happened like that's absolutely not true because could each of those events have happened at different times? Of course, but to, I don't know. I don't know how to tell the narrative of this era, which I don't think that anyone really does because it's so long and we have such little information about what actually happened that I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's the best we can do. And I even tell like, you know, students in classes, like if I do a U.S. class, I mean, this, this, this nation's only been around 250 years and think about how long it takes to get through a U.S. history class and all the nuance and all. And, and of course, we know we still wrongfully omit so much there. I'm trying to do that for 10,000 years in roughly four very diverse parts of the world. Like, yeah, it's never going to be fully adequate. So how do you do it? I don't know that we ever will be able to unless we stumble upon some amazing archaeological find that that is just beyond anything, beyond our wildest dreams. I, I don't know how we do that. This is common for everyone that tries to tell a narrative of this. I mean, really any era, but definitely this era is we always reduce it to an individual subject. Like, even you were forced to do that to say, to make up these two My hypothetical traders. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Because we have such little information. It's not as if we can do, like, a genealogy of the 
thoughts that were happening at the time because we have zero idea what those people were thinking. You know what I mean? Well, and that brings us to our next point. Well, not the next point, but but a point we're going to be making today. One of the firm establishments of the state, why we can actually provide a little bit more detail and nuance and have more fruitful debates of states that we're about to talk about is because the state gives us more information because the state coincides with the establishment of writing. Um, which is where actual historians do really start to come in, and that's that's where we pick up the research. Um, I'm not saying that's when anthropologists and archaeologists stop. By by no means, that's not what I'm saying. But then historians actually kind of jump in and begin to interpret the the written documents or uh, tablets or papyrus or bamboo or whatever it is that we are interpreting from this time period. So, um. Going back to our wholly inadequate hypothetical uh, 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 society and individual in that society, we must understand that that it's at this point in time that this this attachment to status um, that is fed through novel surplus uh, becomes so addictive uh, that again he's now forcefully oppressed a good 50 to 51% of the population. And again, I, I must stress, as Nick clearly said, he's not doing this by himself. Like this is a male thing that has been going on for thousands of years at this point, right? But at this point, that's happened, right? And to ensure that his surplus, um, again, over this time period remains uh, his and then the status attached to it is somehow part of a legacy that he now really wants, he wants to be in control of reproductive rights. And so an institution is born uh, known as marriage, right? We all think it's it's this wonderful institution about, man, like true love or true lust or whatever you want. Those are really just modern incarnations. The marriage was a, a, a both a social and material contract in which the woman was expected specifically produ- to produce heirs. And most importantly, in a patriarchal society, male heirs so that he could specifically pass on his surplus and the status there that was attached to it uh, down his bloodline and feel like his legacy has been, because nobody lives forever, that his legacy is intact, right? And so they began to ensure, so, and the easiest way to ensure that that legacy is intact is to make sure that all women in your society, or at least the women you plan to procreate with, have never slept with anyone before you and will never sleep with anyone after you. And that's that that institution. And again, we see this begin to happen even in some of the ancient stories, right? Like we see slowly but surely, uh, the Greeks are a favorite example of mine. At one point in time, like the pre-Greek culture, Cycladic and Mykonean and so on and so forth, they had very high reverence for, for, for deities like Gaia, right? The Mother Earth. And by the time we get to more patriarchal Greece, uh, everyone's favorite classical period, which is awfully patriarchal, it's Zeus, right? Like all of a sudden, there's no stories being told about Gaia. It's Zeus and his ability to shoot lightning and procreate with whoever he wants, whenever he wants. We joke in class, he is the rapiest god ever. And and we see that just in the way we we think about things, and we'll come back to the role of stories in just a little bit, but I think that's like an important demarcation right there. Um, we could even pick on the creation stories of the Abrahamic faiths, but we'll, we'll wait on that one until uh, a little bit later, how, uh, you know, the Eve's role versus Adam's role and so on and so forth. Um, and this rationalizes why men were able to take power and bolsters the institutions of marriage and, of course, that uh, need for men to control the reproduction of society at that moment in time through course of power. Um, it's no secret that during these periods of time we see laws begin to uh, establish themselves where a weirdly disproportionate amount of them are about reproduction and marriage and divorce. Hammurabi's code is like the first written set, at least for Western civilization. It's 282 laws. 
and, and Nick and I joke all the time, you really don't need that many laws for a cool, like, stateless society, right? You only need, like, don't murder, don't rape, don't do weird things to kids, and, and that probably covers, like, the morality piece right there. Once you start digging into 282 laws, most of those laws are about protection of, of, of property or surplus or status, and a lot of it had to do with ensuring male lines remained pure. I mean, that's the only reason you would bother to write down 282 laws uh, in the ancient world. There's just no, You are protecting something, a status, um, and a stratification and a hierarchy. Anyway... The other thing we have to understand is there are guys, like I said, that have also been oppressed at this moment in time. They could not compete with the strongest, the wiliest, the the most cunning uh, uh, leaders. And those those guys eventually are, are going to uh, uh, resist. I mean, that's just a thing. Eventually, you are going to upset people. There's going to be our, a, a new guy. Let's get a new like uh, token guy in here. Egyptian ditch digger. There's going to be a ditch digger at some point that is... Digging an irrigation ditch uh, somewhere in the Nile Delta and is going to ask the question, like, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do this while that other guy, you know, stands above me with a whip or whatever? Maybe not a whip, but whatever. He he gets more of the fruits of my labor than I get. And eventually more and more of these guys are going to begin to to ask that question. Um and, and this is where that strength comes in. And this is where we see the establishment of state. And so that's where we want to transition. In all of these places, what we do know is that leaders rose to power. They were called something differently in these places. In China, it may have been like emperor, and, and he was able to achieve status in a way we'll talk about in just a second. Or in India, it was the rule of rajas. Or in, in, in uh, Mesopotamia, it was the kings. Uh, it was also kings in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh is not usually a term uh, associated with Egypt until like the new kingdom. Um, but regardless, we have these leaders. And here's one of the most important things. How did these leaders at first garner power besides mere strength, cunning, and, 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 and uh, outcompeting their other male counterparts? And this is one that we definitely, well, at least I think we agree upon. They told stories. And it's not just that they told new stories. People have been telling stories long before this. Hunter-gatherer societies, that's how they passed on information, through storytelling, right? Like that's, we have numerous great stories from Native American societies and Sub-Saharan African societies and Aboriginal societies and even societies before um, um, we get the establishment of states. We know that they had stories. That was the reproduction of knowledge so that they could pass on a way of doing things. And humans aren't even unique in this capacity. We know that other species pass on information to new generations and I would have to say, maybe in some sort of primitive, or maybe I'm being dismissive, form of storytelling. That's how the orca know the orca, the next generation of orca know how to flip over the ice so the seal falls in, right, or something along those lines. So storytelling is crucial. We do posit the idea that most of these ancient stories at least must have, because all we have at this point is oral translations until they were eventually written down, and who knows how accurate they were when they were written down. But regardless, most of these stories answered a couple of questions. First question is, why am I here? Second question is, where am I going? Or what's happening in the future? Or more clearly with the Abrahamic faiths, what happens when I die? The argument is that if you can answer two of those, those two questions, because humans have been asking those for a long time. Humans have been looking up to the stars, seeking more. Whenever the birth of consciousness came, that's when we started asking those questions. So if you can answer those questions for a lot of people as one of these shrewd, more cunning quote-unquote leaders that like surplus, if you can answer that, you're going to get an awful lot of the population to willingly just shut up and follow you because you've given them a reason for being. You're digging this ditch 
because if you do as I say, you will be rewarded in the afterlife or something along those lines. You can answer that question. That might be enough for a lot of people. It's not enough for everybody, but it's a lot, enough for a lot of people. What do you think of that? We've been telling that in classes for, I don't even know at this point, five, six years. I still believe a lot of it, but I again, it's overly generalized and simplified. You're saying this, the main thing that I struggle with is this thought that it depends on how the story is told. Like you are a hypothetical token ditch digger. You told the story as if like he was digging the ditch and then eventually got pissed off that this other person was getting more than him or whatever and started asking questions. And so the person above him invented a story to justify the social arrangements. It's the order of events that I have. Well, I messed that up, actually. I usually don't do that in class, and I thought about it as I did it. That guy's not even asking questions yet. So I apologize to the listeners, if you've, or if you've already taken the class or whatever. You know I actually don't do that question asking until after the story. So I did mess up that order. Mains, uh, and it's the chicken or the egg question, is how could there possibly be stratification without the story in the first place? But why would you create the story if you weren't trying to legitimize some form of stratification? Well, and so that's the point I think I was driving at is the other societies that predate these, the more romanticized egalitarian societies that may not have been as egalitarian as we like to think or whatever, already had stories. So these new, again, over the course of these thousands of years, these new quote-unquote leaders who have seized power over both women and their fellow males are not even, they're, they're not creating new stories, they're manipulating the existing stories to justify why this is happening. And since, and this is one of the most important things, since these stories were oral, and they were oral, importantly, for a couple of good reasons, um, which modern society looks down upon, but these good reasons are oral translation was malleable. And in a time when, if let's again, you're a cliche hunter-gatherer, you want your stories to be malleable because your material circumstances are ever-changing. So nothing should be set in stone. You are constantly moving through cycles, following migrations. The world is ever-changing for you. And your material world or how you are surviving resource-wise is ever-changing. So you don't want your stories to be permanent. So it's actually good. Secondly, the minute you start making your stories unchangeable, you start writing them down. And again, there is... It, it, there's no reason for you to begin writing stories down if you have limited space or time or you're constantly on the mood. There's no place in a yurt for a bookcase. Um, so that's why they were malleable. Now, our leaders later on can make that malleable ma that, that malleability advantageous to themselves by manipulating the story given this new material reality of I have some surplus and I just kicked your ass, right? So will never answer and i think graber is basically what graber is trying to say is the traditional like marxist conception of history is that we go from primitive communism into the acquisition of surplus which is exactly the story that you just told exactly. one of the biggest critiques of this though it's called the myth of the primitive accumulator and it's that the marxist conception of history relies on the the very basic foundation that somewhere at some point, some individual said, I am going to take more than I need and I'm going to take it away from other people. And one of the critiques is, why would that possibly have ever happened? That never would have happened. So the theory, and again, it is just a theory, I do not want anyone assuming this is a fact, is that at some point we associated the extra, not just with extra for extra's sake, but extra with with status 
the feeling that I called it a special feeling, whatever that was. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody before this time period ever felt that way or ever had this type of thing happen. But we know that based on stories and rules of conduct in a lot of these societies, things like like the need to be constantly reciprocal, reciprocity, there were checks and balances to make sure that there were only a narrow uh, – there was only a narrow set of possibilities for people to explore this idea of of specialness attached to material status. Now, I do agree with Graeber that people were allowed to feel special for very other different reasons, and they were celebrated for their uniqueness. Even in his examples that we cited, I think it was like the second episode, people that were buried and remembered in these 25, 30,000-year-old uh, societies were unique for various physical things or something along those lines. So I do think that they were celebrated for uniqueness, but not uniqueness attached specifically to at least their need for extra material surplus, especially stuff that you need to survive, like things like my examples of olives and yams and rice and whatever else, depending on where we are in the world. Again, it's just a theory. Question. The, what we're trying to unpack when we were talking about the origins of inequality of like who was the first special kind of asshole to say we now have extra and instead of sharing it equally amongst everyone i'm going to take it all and i will fight any of you that try to challenge me yeah i don't know like i said i i attach it to and again it's just a theory that first guy that felt just a little bit extra special because he had something new and cool and neat just like the middle school kid that walks in with the newest iPhone or the newest set of Jordans or whatever. Um, it's just a theory. I mean, because again, we're never – I don't know that we're ever going to be able to demarcate it. Like this was the first dude in wherever, Egypt, right? We know who the first kings were, but but it, but it, but it this process is – they're, they're just like the most recent manifestation of this process, right? The most clear manifestation because they start carving themselves everywhere. But, but it happened before them, right? I don't think we'll ever be able to answer that question. What I can answer unequivocally is the four places that we like to cliche talk about are clear establishments of state. I don't know if they're the we they're the first state. Maybe there were states before this that, that went away. Maybe there's some proverbial Atlantis somewhere we don't we haven't found yet. But but they definitely are some of the oldest establishments of state. So that's what we're going to talk about now. Is in these places this this asshole the asshole that takes the first set of extra extra stuff right. Um, and, and he likes feeling good about it and he's manipulated a story about it and he's now outcompeted his other males and that's why some of them are digging ditches and others are sowing seeds and the other ones are eventually going to be forced to, uh, uh, start writing down his dictations and things along those lines. Um, and that's actually, a, you know what, I shouldn't even pass over that. That's actually key. The stories that he is, uh... Uh, manipulating and using to justify his actions. And again, in the ancient world, a lot of these stories are like common and they're passed on and, and we see like overlap in many of the ancient stories, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, that's when we actually do see the birth in, of, of writing in all these societies is when we are seeking more permanence that I like the way things are specifically for myself right now. So the best way that I can think of to make sure it never changes, just like my line, my surplus passing down my line is to make it permanent. And I will write this story down so it feels more – it's less malleable that way. I'm not saying it's not malleable. We edit shit all the time. But at least in his mind, especially when we're carving it in places like stone or on walls or something along those lines, it feels more permanent that way. So this 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 way of doing things is going to remain intact. This is also when 
as Graeber puts it, we start to look at things like monumentality. And this is, these are not the first monuments. They have found monuments older than them in places like, you know, Eastern Turkey or outside of uh, Moscow is one of the examples he likes to use. But here we again see clear monument building, right? There's no greater example than the Sphinx and Giza and so on and so forth and the great ziggurat of Ur. Um, and we see these things or the, 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 the great city squares of, of Mohenjo-Daro or Harappa uh, in India. We see these things, and this is leaving behind permanence um, because this is the way we want things to be. We think it will be everlasting. Now, we in modern society, I almost said I think we're smart enough to know that's not the case, but I actually doubt that. You know, we always th- There's the cliche saying that Rome will fall, but I don't think people living in places like the modern United States actually ever assume that this is not going to last forever. So that's a whole different topic we'll get to uh, when we get way later on into stateless society but back to the point um let's get back to our egyptian dish digger and our leader right he has the story he's trying to create permanence he has monuments being built uh at first the monuments are simple and they become more complex maybe they are paintings in a cave maybe they are uh uh writing on papyrus but eventually they become very prominent and we get things like sphinxes and of course the giant pyramid the first one and and the later pyramids that come along later or the great ziggurat of ur and so on and so forth we see this permanence and it now takes physical manifestation I'm going to leave behind this legacy. This is who I want to be. This is my immortality so that my status remains intact forever. Um, Not coincidentally, of course, we get one of these ancient stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the first stories written down in Western civilization, right, is the story of a great king and his quest for immortality. And the story is so prominent and has such a profound impact on the region that we know parts of it are clearly I'll be polite and say borrowed by later uh, texts, right? The story of a great flood in which uh, 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 Napishtim, right? I believe that's his name, is told by one of the water gods. Uh, I think her name is Ea. Hey, like there's going to be a great flood because humans have been screwing up for so long now that we just want to wipe slate clean. So you should build a big boat and put animals on it two by two, so on and so forth. Well, clearly that story would be borrowed by a, 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 a another story later on. Um, that's how important that story was. But it's also the story of this king and the lessons he has to learn. And, and, and when we teach this story, we understand that we are celebrating his status. Um, even his status at some point in time equal to God's. I mean, he's able to flat out turn down a goddess who is coming at him uh, sexually and to show that he is uh, above that, he gets to turn her down, right? So these stories are important. But at some point, stories aren't enough. So now let's get back to where I went a little bit out of order. That Egyptian ditch digger, that Mesopotamian seed sower, that just regular everyday scribe, whatever it is, guy working on the next cuneiform uh, uh, word. They're going to start asking questions. I get it. In your story, let's use Egypt as an example, king. You are now claiming to be, uh, let's use the example of Horus. You're claiming to be Horus, the falcon-headed god of divine kingship. And your story dictates that you are the progeny of Isis and Osiris and there was this great adventure they went on where at one point in time Osiris was dead because he had a battle with his brother Set and uh, Isis was able to pick up his remains and put him back together and, 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 and most of us are at least vaguely aware of this story. I don't believe that story, man. Like that story just doesn't make any sense. Like I've been living on this earth now for, uh, you know, 20, 25 years, 30 years. I've never seen anything like that happen and I'm just supposed to believe this and because you have this backstory, 
And because you uh, are holding this thing over my head that you know, of course, what the next afterlife is going to look like. And if I don't perform enough good deeds or follow your rules, that I will somehow not get this afterlife and I will go someplace horrible or negative or I'll have to answer to Osiris or something along those lines. None of that makes any sense to me. Well, again, our theory dictates that at some point, a shrewd leader would perhaps semi-agree with these questioners and then co-opt them. Psst, you're right. Some of the story is a little bit hokey. You might be a little bit on to me, but I'm going to tell you what we're going to do here, man. You don't have to sow seeds anymore. You don't have to dig ditches. This is what you're going to do because you sound like a pretty smart guy. I'm going to give you a little bit more of my surplus, which means you're going to have a little bit more status. I'm going to give you a little bit more than anybody else has, and I'm going to give you a new job. Since you have such good questions, you are now going to begin to patch the holes in the story and enhance the story to make sure that no new holes form. I will call you my storyteller. You are my storytelling class. In certain places in Egypt, I'll call you the priests. Later on during the Warring States uh, uh, period in China, I'll call you the Confucian scholars, right? Or uh, in India, right? The Rajas will, will, will co-opt the Brahma, right? The priest, the priest caste. You get to now dictate the terms of the story because, again, our, clearly our society is growing. Um, I, it is undoubted that the state is successful at growing in a progressive growth-like trajectory. That we cannot deny. We have to understand that. They did grow successfully. Whatever that means, again, growing doesn't necessarily mean, I guess, we'll have to reframe success later on in one of these episodes. But yes, they do grow. So the more and more people begin to ask this question, the larger the story class, storytelling class is going to be and the more complete the story will become, right? Eventually we'll go from, uh, during these periods of time, relatively uh, uh, simple stories of Osiris and, and Set and, and uh, Isis and Horus and so on and so forth or Gilgamesh and we'll get more and more and more complete stories, right? Uh, one of my favorites, I think it's the Akkadian King Sargon I and the story of how he became a king. It's a rags to riches story. He was orphaned and then of course out of nowhere he rises to prominence and he's with this elite family and we all love rags to riches stories. Those are really good stories to tell because then it gives the unwashed masses quote unquote hope. They'll keep working just in case one day they get to be that rags to riches story. Maybe they'll... Uh, uh, you know, win American Idol or get drafted into the NBA or something along those lines. They'll play the lottery and win. That's what keeps people laboring. So the storytellers get better and better at this over time in all of these societies. Uh, but again, it's never going to be enough. There will be people that question. How do we keep the rest of the people from questioning? Well, the next class of people that we decide to develop and what we're doing is we're building a pyramid. Right now we have a king at top storytellers just below them and now below them we create an enforcing class we will take our youngest and strongest males and we will take them at a very young age to condition them not necessarily fully conditioning them in the story but conditioning them and simply enforcing the story so a great example would be later on in sparta where kids are little young boys are taken between ages like five and eight and immediately taken from their mother who did a great job raising them spartan women were were, were some of the freest women in greek society but regardless they're taken from her and sent right to the barracks where they go through this long hard grueling conditioning process which we may or may not detail later but that's a good example right we'll take them at an early age before they can question too much and we will condition them to merely enforce the story most importantly though with the Spartan example, we will take them out of civil society and place them in a separate place so they can, they can no longer relate to 
their cohorts, fully relate to them. They will see them as, as, as people, not necessarily to rule over. They're not the rulers, but people that are, that they have some sort of status over, that they, they don't have these same personal connections to. This enforcing class will be the policing class, and they will now enforce the story. We will call them the Roman Praetorian Guard. We will call them the Middle-Aged Knights. We will call them feudal Japan samurai. Or in the modern uh, United States, we will call them, I, I forget the number, between 45 and 47 different policing institutions, from the ATF to the FBI to the CIA to the, uh, the El Paso County Sheriff. This list could go on for a very long time, right? That many policing institutions enforcing people's subservience. That's important. Now, these enforcers uh, eventually will uh, have too much uh, on their hands, and I'm going to tell you why. These societies do grow, and as they grow, they're going to bump into each other. And the societies themselves, rather than individuals, will be competing, quote-unquote, for surplus and status and so on and so forth. When this happens, we're going to need a new set of enforcers, external enforcers that 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 more or less try and enforce our narrative, our way of life, our way of doing things upon others, or at the bare minimum, keeps the others from doing the same to us. So if you happen to be you in my two favorite examples right now, if you happen to be in Egypt and all of a sudden you're healing, hearing the stories of Marduk, right, a great Babylonian god, by merely by merely hearing those stories, it could be enough to get you to question the narratives that have conditioned you to do what you do. This is enough. This is a new way of thinking. So the Egyptian rulers would be super scared of you hearing these stories. Again, this is all hypothetical. I can't go through each Egyptian king and figure out how much he censored. I mean, I'm sure somebody could, but I'm not willing to do that. How much he censored his population regarding other beliefs. This is important because then those external enforcers are carrying with them your narrative and in many cases seeking to spread it. Later on in Matthew verses 5 through 7, they will literally be given the order to salt the earth, right? To take that story and spread it and make as many little people that think just like you or just like us as they can. That's one of the key components uh, with these external enforcers. So now at this point, we have like three main classes at the top. We got a king. We got the royal family right below them, like his elite line, right? And then below them, we've got the storytellers. And below them, we've got two sets of enforcers. Who's everybody else in this society? Well, we argue in this theory, and it is merely a theory. I, I have to keep stressing that. Everybody else is some sort of labor. They labor to help produce either the surplus or the reason for the surplus. Maybe they are architects for the ziggurat or uh, Ur, which is like this symbolic monument that has meant people to get people to be subservient. But regardless, all of them work for what we call a state, and they do so under the course of power of first of the narrative, then of the enforcing class, and the enforcing class, of course, using its laws. Then to ensure that they remain just labor, Really shrewd societies fractured them. They, they started to overly specialize them to where these people did not even relate to each other as fellow labor. So the ditch digger did not relate to the seed sower as fellow labor. In fact, the seed sower might get an extra beer at the end of the day, which is actually a real thing in Egypt. You were often paid in beer. He might get an extra beer at the end of the day, thus separating the seed sower and the ditch digger so they may not unite in common cause and challenge the labor institutions that have kept them uh, under underfoot or under whip for so long. That's one of those important 
important things that happens. And labor begins becomes more and more fractured over time as we begin to specialize and get better at better at producing various forms of surplus. Um, and as that surplus itself diversifies, as we have olives flooding in and yams flooding in, and of course now we have carts, and eventually we will work during this time period with metals, and now we have uh, we go from bronze to iron, and 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 our audience, I believe, gets the idea that this is the way you fracture labor. If we look at modern society today, one of the easiest examples I like to use in class is somebody works at, it's super cliche, so I apologize for saying it, but somebody that works at Taco Bell is clearly labor. Unfortunately, uh, contrary to popular belief, LeBron James, as a basketball fan, is also labor. I get that he owns some things, but for the most part, that's how he came into this. He is labor. I want to ask the question rhetorically of our audience, why can't the Taco Bell worker or LeBron James understand they're actually on the same side as labor? That's how much fracturing has occurred in states over the course of, at that po- of, of at this point, two to 4,000 years. So that's kind of the pyramid structure of state in a nutshell. And we argue that that pyramid structure in one way, shape, or form exists to this day in all states. India is a great example with the caste system. It literally follows this. At the top, you have the Rajas, and then you have the Brahmin. And then you have the Kshatriya, which are the warriors or enforcers, as I called them. And then below them, you have the Shudra, which is the uh, 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 like the merchants. And then below them, I might have messed that up, the Vaisha and the Shudra. Regardless, you have these different forms of labor below them. Same thing could be said in modern societies, whether we call them socialisms or communisms or republics or democracies, they actually all form themselves into a pyramid structure where there is, as you go up, there are less and less people with coercive authoritative power. Every society is this way. No one in a state in a state, has been able to reinvoke this more circular egalitarian society yet, regardless of what they think their political ideology is. Some promise it, right? Communism may have in some way, shape, or form promised it. It didn't achieve it, right? At least not yet, anywhere that I've seen. So what do you think of this very general, again, we're being general, this, this pyramid thing regarding states specifically? It doesn't mean every society is this way, but states are this way. Very clearly, it's so Marxist which is fine. My One of my main critiques has to do with the story itself and the origin of the people at the top of the pyramid. The way that you tell the story implies that someone at some point was so smart that they invented the story and they maintained control of the story and then they were able to co-opt others, the storytellers, to then rewrite and continue to tell the story but somehow the people at the top of the pyramid maintained control over the story and i highly highly question whether or not any leader was ever actually that smart as an example if we look at like the middle ages i do a lecture on divine right of kings etc very few of those kings were so intelligent to actually even care about the story or contribute to the story king james was an exception to the rule, I think. Like, the kings were so dumb that there's no way that they could able they could master this story. Well, so here's the thing. Just like we talked about, you're never going to find that pre-state male leader that did this because they have not left us enough evidence. But <clears throat> in class, we look at things like the palette of Narmer, right? That that that's clearly the king having he didn't carve it clearly. He clearly has that produced in celebration of him. That is 
generating a narrative in which that te- that explains to people why things are the way they are, right? The pylon at Luxor that Ramses has, or yeah, I think of Gilgamesh as an example, or the ziggurat, right? The priest, the, literally the storytelling class are the only ones that can live in that little uh, structure at the top of the ziggurat, right? Those are things that all contribute to the story. Now, is the, are any of them the original storytellers? No. But we see that they are able to continue to alter it over time. It's all based on the assumption that the rulers are directing the storytellers to create this monument, these monuments, and tell the story to celebrate themselves. I'm also willing to admit in this theory, and we do it oftentimes in class, that many people, if those two questions have been answered even before there was coercive power, they're willing to submit. There are a lot of people... Sorry, listeners, most people in human history have proven to be sheep. If you're able to answer those questions, if you're able to give them a purpose and explain what's going to happen to them if they follow their purpose, good or bad, they'll, they'll, they'll shut up and Netflix and chill for the rest of their lives and fill out Excel spreadsheets and cubicles and dig ditches and so on and so forth. I mean, look around us. Like, again, just looking at the United States, there are 300 million people here that are asleep and they're laying down, which is why we're building this class. One of the reasons we're building this class. Well, why do we know this is how it works? Most people knows current, no current society is corrupt in one way, shape or form. Don't care if they're left or right leaning does not matter. Most people know this nobody is doing anything about it. And even the questioning is not at the level of questioning of even like the Socratic level when he is challenging Athens. Most people aren't even willing to go that high. We're so scared. So why is that the case? Based on the story of the pyramid, the people that actually have the majority of the power are the storytellers. And I think that if this pyramid was actually structured that way, there would be so many examples throughout history of where the storytellers in an instant took over power. There are. I'm giving you the first ones. Storytellers get pretty smart later on, too. Literally, the Catholic Church rules the Middle Ages. They were at one point storytellers, and then they are running the show, and then they are competing with various Holy Roman emperors for lay versus ecclesiastical power. Like, So, yeah, storytellers did get smart. Confucian scholars at one point in the dynasties were dictating to emperors, more, especially child emperors, more so than vice versa. Or one of my great, the favorite examples is in, 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 in some of the, under some of the Ottoman sultans in their empire, right? It's the viziers, right? The, the grand viziers that have a little bit more course of power over the sultan, right? So it's, 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 I can see what you're saying there that power sometimes fluctuates between storyteller and quote unquote king, especially since that king is so heavily, in many of these ancient societies anyway, not now, but in these ancient, so heavily reliant on bloodline that you, you end up with a kid sometimes at the top. And so then it's his advisors, which, you know, they're part of the storytelling class that get to dictate that power. We see it. We see it in that case. We'll use Graeber's term. We see it oscillate oftentimes between storytellers and leaders. But like I said, the oscillation changes here and there, right? Even in, even in, in, in modern republics, sometimes it feels like the legislative branches, whether it be parliament or U.S. Congress or the Majlis in Iran or the Duma or whatever, whatever term we want to use for it, have a little bit more power than whatever the executive is. But then other times it feels like that's not the case. So I think there is a little bit of back and forth. Right. The modern, let's say, United States, that the this is this becomes incredibly complicated because the storytelling class is probably the media and maybe we could throw like intellectuals in there but the ruling class is it politicians or is it the wealthy 
It's both. I think we both agree that it's both, right? And it would not be unique in history, right? Um, just like I talked about in the Holy Roman Empire, not the classical Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire, like power constantly fluctuated between lay and ecclesiastical power. Sometimes it's the Pope. Sometimes he had to deal with a uh, what investiture controversy where the kings and the popes are deciding who should have more power and who gets to name bishops and blah, blah, blah. It was super boring. I get it. I probably have some middle-aged people, people that love the middle ages in there for me. It's like nauseatingly boring, but whatever. Like, so yeah, that all happened. So there is obviously a point in time where people, where power fluctuates. And I would argue that, that it also fluctuates here in the U S I do think we both agree that right this second, that corporate power does supersede political power. But the, and if that's the case, who are the corporations, quote unquote, these evil corporations, who are, who are their storytellers? Well, you just nailed it. That is, uh, as you called it in class, the culture industry, mass media, and so on and so forth, right? That, that those are their storytellers and they're compensated as such. That's how we know they're higher on the status. So even us as teachers or people in the K through 12 system, technically they're storytellers working for the state, but because their story, their version of the story now no longer matters as much as those other people's story, mass media story, because it, it can't be, it's easier to commodify and exploit and capitalize on and blah, blah, blah. They're now the more important storyteller. So they're higher in status than a, whatever, a high school English teacher. States say post like World War II or something. I don't know what line you want to draw, but I don't think that there's ever been oscillation between corporations and politicians since probably that era. I think it's always been since then the corporations at the top of the pyramid. You might be right. I, I don't know that I care enough, like at this point, to delineate between the two. Like I really don't. Like both are highly problematic to what we are thinking about move, trying to do moving forward, right? To, to, to create autonomy for individuals in society. So both are, both are problems. Which one's the bigger problem? Pyramid theory is that it's based largely on, let's say discrepancies of power, but that's not the story. You focus a lot on like the roles of everyone in the pyramid, but actually the central aspect of the theory is the story itself. And we don't actually really talk about that. I think honestly, if we revamped it to be more post-structural and use Foucault's terminology like the discourse, the discourse is the center to that analysis, but we just say it in passing. So what we would do in the future is uh, literally go through the story of Horus and Set and Isis – or not Horus and Set – or Cyrus and Set and talk about and like break it down like we would in a mythology class breakdown, which I would love to do. We just never have time because we're trying to get on to something else. But we do it in other classes like our mythology classes. We definitely break them down that far like or go through the Epic of Gilgamesh or go through Genesis or go through – is that what you're talking about? No about the story itself okay. it's about the battles between different discourses so there's some dominant oh, narrative okay so was is there a if, if we're following the dialectical process the story of of uh, uh isis and osiris is the thesis what was an antithesis that then forced a little bit of a change there and then how okay. did I see what you're the people at the top of the pyramid and maybe the storytellers manipulate it? How did they control the process of the discourse over time to discredit other authors and control who could speak and when and why and how and et cetera? All of the things that are involved in discourse. So that's something that we should be researching and exploring maybe if we ever really want to get down to the, to, to the nuts and bolts of this. 
I don't know that I care because whatever, we're just trying to get through this part to get to the modern era um, most of the time. But I mean, I guess it wouldn't hurt to explore if we get an actual – because again, listeners, I don't really do a lot of the ancient stuff. I do obviously a very glossy version of the ancient stuff and I know my way around it. But no, I've not read every different possible version of the Osiris and Isis uh, uh, myth or the Epic of Gilgamesh, which there are going to be, I'm willing to bet, multiple translations, multiple versions where you're going to see some of that that dialectical process at, at, at play. Um, just like Nick brought up with the Middle Age example of like the King James Bible versus like other versions, prior versions of the Bible and things like that. So I think that needs to happen. I definitely don't think that you and I need to do that for the sake yeah, of our I mission zero, right now. Honestly, desire to read every different version of those myths. And honestly, if I'm being honest i guarantee that someone has written that already that's fine like that's their discipline and that's great it's not super applicable to what we're trying to do now but what i am super interested in is the history the genealogy of statist discourse and how the discourse of the state came into being and then came to dominate the commentary in our society meaning the fact that we take for granted that the state is a thing Right. And that all of this discourse happens around the state and how it functions and how it exists and how it protects us and all these things. And any discourse that goes against that, mainly anarchist discourse for this very specific application, is wholly marginalized. And the authors are discredited and illegitimized and et cetera. Like that practice is something that I think we probably should look into more. And we do it a little bit when we get to the larger state example, right? Like when you go from these these growing states and they become kingdoms and then eventually we get to empires, right? The first global attempt being the Akkadians and then the Assyrians and a little bit the Babylonians, but then the Persians really nail it, right? And then after the Persians, it's the Macedonians for a brief period of time, though, uh, you know, Alex gets, you know, he, he, he wears out his welcome relatively quickly and that, that one collapses. But then the Romans come along and we do that story. We talk about the stories that created Rome, the the the... Uh, Romulus and Remus story, the rape of Lucretia, um, and then, of course, the later version, the reinforcement of that actually given by uh, 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 Virgil under the orders of, of Caesar Augustus, the Aeneid, right? Those stories. But here's what, what I think you're also asking for. When we talk about Rome, one of my, my favorite things that we do when we talk about Rome and, and the discourse around it is like when we talk about Cato. And Cato calling for the mass genocide of the Carthaginians, right? During the, I want to say, right before, after the Third Punic War. Whatever. There's three Punic Wars. It's between one or two of them. Regardless, Cato then, we see that discourse, right? These public arguments that this guy is making and anyone that challenges him is highly problematic because they're challenging the will of the state. Now here, it's just an example because Rome is already well established at this point. It It is a state. It is a thing. But we see that what happens. And then, of course, later on down the line, we see what happens with Caesar Augustus, anyone that challenged his notion of the new state and the paterfamilia and him being the the, the father of the Roman family. Um, even the poet, uh, one of the most famous poets of all time, Ovid, right? He's cast aside. He's chastised all of these things for, for daring to challenge even a small notion, in this case, the sexuality of the state, because he's a little bit too... Uh, risque and what he's producing right like so we we see that's how far the state was willing to go to protect itself in those examples and rome is, a, is, is an easy one to pick on um because they were at certain points uh highly receptive because of growth and the need for that special surplus and and, and influence and power and so on highly receptive of different people and different ideas for different parts of their history but then at other times became very protective I don't want to use the word nationalist because they were not a nation, um, but very uh, – I, I, I don't know. What would be a good word? Tribal? They're bigger than a tribe. I don't know. But they, yeah, they became very xenophobic. 
Um, so, and it, they went back and forth depending on what their goals were. And they, their existence, of course, coincides with one of the, the creation of some of the most perfect stories, um, that can be used to, again, not only answer those two questions, but garner permanent subscribers to your state. They happen to coincide with the birth of monotheism, um, at least for Western civilization. Now, some of my listeners will uh, that have been in class before will remember that technically Zoroastrianism, in my opinion, is the first monotheism. But it is because of Zoroastrianism that eventually uh, the Israelites will learn about certain ideas like, uh, you know, uh, free will and days of judgment and so on and so forth. And eventually rabbinical culture begins writing it down. And of course we get a Talmud and all that cool stuff. And, and I'm not going to do religious history right this second, but we do know that those stories by the time we get to the Roman empire are ripe for manipulation to control populations. I'm not saying that's why they were originally created by the rabbis. I'm not saying, you know, whatever book of Esther was like that or Daniel or so on and so forth, nor am I saying the synoptic Gospels that come after were intentionally made that way, but I am saying flat out they were used that way. Um, and so as Rome oscillates between these different, like, you know, periods of time between protecting the state and having discourse on what it means to be Roman, and then, of course, then opening it up and then closing it again and then opening it up and then closing it again, um, we see. Uh, and, and it's closed for a while, obviously, to the new followers of this monotheism. At first, of course, uh, the Jewish population that they are suppressing in Judea, um, when I believe it is Ptolemy eventually conquers it, to, of course, the resistance movements that last, uh, like the Maccabees, and then eventually, of course, uh, we get to uh, the rise of messianic culture, and of course, one person claiming to be a messiah becomes more famous than the others. All of those forms of resistance are important, but I must stress this. This is one of my favorite examples because even after uh, the followers of this messiah eventually begin to call them, uh, because I think it's Paul on his way to Damascus, begins to call themselves the followers of the Christ so they were Christian, thus separating themselves from Jews, they were not necessarily, they of course were ostracized and 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 uh, not even ostracized. They were oppressed, flat out oppressed and subjugated sometimes by the Roman Empire. But the story, that story, as an antithesis, it started as an antithesis to two things, corrupt rabbinical uh, 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 practices and Roman law. It started, that's how the story started, at least the New Testament. It was an antithesis. After 300 years of going back and forth, what we see here is it becomes a new thesis under Constantine. Right. Eventually, it becomes adopted by a Roman ruler as his belief. And though, and even though he is Christian, it's not until Theodosius it becomes the religion of the empire. But we see, by the time we get to Constantine, there we see how state discourse went back and forth a little bit based on story. Um, and again, I'm not filling in those 300 years because we don't have time on this podcast, and you can read about it. Right? Like, yeah, at some point, Christians were persecuted. Sometimes they were celebrated. Whatever. Right? In the Roman Empire. But what we see eventually is it becomes the dominant story, and then Constantine codifies it and singularizes it, right? And the church had already been doing this a little bit, throwing out certain gospels that were not convenient, right? Like Irenaeus in the second century is like throwing out very important gospels that would have been super cool, like the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Philip. By the time we get to Constantine, it is going to be fully codified. Here's a Nicene Creed. Here are all, of course, these rules, right? In three, what is it, 25? This is the way Christianity is going to be. It is now a, a state-sanctioned religion, and we're going to run it this way. And now it is a new story to garner subscribers, and we will imperialize the story. So it started as an antithesis, but Christianity does not remain the same. 
the state shapes Christianity as well, and we get a new state-sanctioned Christianity in 325 that will now become the story as to why you, Roman nobody, do what you do. So even the story you just told, though, is reinforcing my main critique, and I don't know how for us to escape this sort of narrative, but you just told the story of how Christianity over time became canonized, but by doing that, you completely ignored every other subjugated system of knowledge that Christianity won out against. And I think if we're going to do service to this history, and specifically for stateless societies, we need to do our job of unearthing the subjugated knowledges that were cast aside and bringing them to light. That's the real job of what we should be doing, right? I don't think that's useful for this project. I think it's useful for a historian specifically teaching this era. So yes, in a history class, I would absolutely talk about why Roman Catholicism is what I'm talking about here, right? The universal, right? That's the Greek word for universal Christianity that he was creating, outcompeted the Coptic church and outcompeted the Nestorian church and then outcompeted not even like those churches, different forms of like, uh, like how the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes were all, of course, different Jewish denominations and they outcompeted them. And then, of course, outcompeted like people that believed in the, the, the cult of Marduk or something along those lines. Yeah, like that, a real history course on that specific topic deserves that attention. No. Yeah, I don't give a shit about the religious aspect of it. I don't care about that at all. I'm saying for statist discourse, for the purpose of this class, we should probably do that work. How? So if we were using Rome as our, our state example now, since that's where we've advanced to, whether we were supposed to or not in this, this podcast, it's fine. What else would you be exploring? How Rome outcompeted, like, Carthage? Or, like, what do you, or the I think we have to become more modern than that. I think we need to fast forward to, like, the 1600s so or whatever. Well, then I would agree with that because that's what I was saying, too. I do think we need to add a little bit, again, a lot more examples and a lot more depth for stateless society, for us to explore the idea of stateless society. All we're doing today is doing a super brief, how'd we get here? Here are some states, right? Now, if 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 people want to like critique it just for the sake of critiquing because it's too linear and it's too generalized, so be it. But then, like again, then then we're being a little bit overly post-structuralist where we never actually accomplish anything because then we're just we get down buried in minutia forever. Um, and I think that's one of my problems with sometimes. And I'm not. I know that's not what all post-structuralism is, but in this capacity, if I. It's going to do us no good. Well, okay, let's unpack that for a second because you keep saying it, but I don't fully understand it. Where is this coming from that your perception of post-structuralism is that they're so buried in minutia that they never actually accomplish anything because most post-structuralists are at the macro level all the time? Well, because what you said at that point, like it's all – it's oftentimes about reading between the lines, right? Especially with uh, like, again, Discipline and Punish or something like that. Great detail, wonderful book and you – and clearly – any academic understands what he's trying to accomplish there, right? I'm going to flat out say it. Did it take 250, 300 pages to do that? Like what, what, why was that useful? I mean, I guess that could be a critique of post-structuralism, but God damn, if I'm going to read a history of Egyptian, Egypt or something, like we're talking thousands of pages here. So. I know. And I, so I'm agreeing with you. Why would I bother with that right now for what we're trying to accomplish? Yeah, you have to understand for Foucault, he wrote like four books about four different discourses that he thought were well, important. I'm not strictly I mean, critiquing that's him. I'm a big fan, as you know. But yeah, I mean, Deleuze, like A Thousand Plateaus is like 670 pages. Like, yes, that's absurd. But I don't mean that – I don't think that that signifies that they're buried in minutia. 
why does the length of the book mean that they're super micro-focused? Because they're not accomplishing anything. We're trying to accomplish something here. At first, build a class. Secondly, perhaps draw out the conclusion to a published work. That's what stateless societies might also be. Which is fine. I get that. But if we're going to stick with the traditional linear Marxist narrative, like we're not going to accomplish any of those things in any fruitful way. That's not going to happen. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's true. Because the more I've been thinking about it, right? Like, like it's nice that people write these long, like grandiose works. And, and I, I appreciate them for it. And it's like super something I look up to because I'll, I'll never do it. But one thing I realized the other night when um, – when that student brought up that asinine comment by, uh, I, I'll, I'll try and be as vague as possible here uh, on this podcast, but long story short, an educator at an institution refuses to acknowledge or ever assign um, works by Karl Marx, right? Because his political philosophy, uh, specifically communism, did not work in the real world in their opinion, and that's fine. I, I don't even have a bone to pick with that, right? The this, this Soviet Union no longer exists. You can't really argue that. Um but we both know, and why this shocked both of us when we heard this from the student, because you know we were introducing uh, historical materialism to him, is that that is such a small part of what Karl Marx actually wrote. The re he wrote uh, thousands of pages on so many other topics. Very few people, uh, and I've met a couple, have ever even read all of Capital or some, you know, right those types of things, and that's fine. Not 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 saying that you should or need to read those things, but I guess the point I'm making is. For impact, for influence, it got me thinking, what had more impact on people, the German ideology or the 30-page Communist Manifesto, which is a super generalization, simplified, kind of exciting, whatever. What had a larger global impact between those two, in your opinion? I'm not saying – I don't I, – I'm, I'm going to rely on you now as the sociologist because this is your wheelhouse – I'm assuming it's the manifesto as far as material impact, but I don't want to make that assumption incorrectly. And I don't know if we can answer that question. Like how much did a new philosophy on interpreting human history, how much impact did that have on the trajectory of humanity? Like, I don't know. We can't really make that conclusion. But the German, as we talk about in classes, you talk about specifically the German ideology is not even the thing yet when Lenin has already read the manifesto. And Trotsky have read the manifesto and Bakunin have read the manifesto and list your cliche revolutionary hero here, whoever have read the manifesto. But you're still telling the, yeah. Okay. I understand what you're saying, but I'm you're also, still telling this story from a Marxist perspective, from a very linear Marx as a person, this human subject, this author wrote this book and then it materially changed the world. So I'm telling it from a simplified perspective. If it is grounded in materialism from this Marxist point of view, indeed, I will not deny that. I, I said it on the first one, on the second one, actually. I do believe that it, that we are, that it is material that dictates human activity. I do. That's what I believe. Well, I and so Marx as a person is irrelevant. He's merely a product of the, his mode of production. If sure. If you really want to go there. Sure. In fact, his ideas are irrelevant. Sure. It, it would have been anyone. It could have been anyone that would have written that book at the same time, and Lenin would have done exactly what he was going to do, regardless sure. of whether that book existed, and on and on and so, on. So, and what we have here, this theory that we've been talking about, is a synthesis of all of the all of the various philosophers that we have read, and none of it's going to be completely theirs in in its entirety. 
I guess my biggest critique is if we follow this trajectory, you and I as individuals for this class and for our mission, we're not going to get anywhere because very clearly the linear Marxist trajectory is not going to result in a stateless society. That's never going to happen. We are never going to. No, I agree agree with that part. All I'm telling you for this part of the story that we did is for this specific part of what we're trying to accomplish it is minutia. That's why I'm trying to get through it as quickly as possible, right? Like, I don't need to, we don't need to spend this much more, this much more time in the ancient world. We need to, like, so it needs to be one episode for this podcast, which is what you all are listening to right now. Um, or it needs to be one class in class. And then I agree, we need to get on to, like, what is society like now? So, so that's what, that's, being... that's why I'm trying to simplify so that we can jam through this. But if I start going through, like, the navigation and the back and forth between, like, these different narratives of the ancient world, we'll never get there. So let me give you my main critique. If it's going to be so simplified, which is fine, even if it wasn't simplified, how is it relevant at all to what we're trying to accomplish? And I'll be more—I'll be more specific. How does us learning about the history or the origins of the state help us somehow to come up with a theory or real-life praxis to actually achieve a stateless society? Well, it might not. That's the point. That's why we're performing this entire exercise in public, right, and recording it. We don't know that we need to, in a classroom or in our publication, actually talk about this pyramid at all. It might be useless. I came with an idea the other day that I don't fully believe in, but I want to unpack it more on my own, and I will. But I, And I'll say this, and it's like blasphemy for any historian, so you can react as you want. But I have this theory that history is actually counter-revolutionary. Because the second we tell the history of something, we are unable to think outside of that self-created box for something for the future. So the second you tell me some history for how the state existed, I am unable to think outside of that story for how to unpack and deconstruct the state. Cool. Like, I don't know what to say to that. Like, I don't disagree with it. Like, like history is clearly, especially the way it's taught in the Western world, especially the way we approach it, because this is where we're from, right? I, I, I'd love to be like some sort of indigenous circular thinker, but I'm not. This is like, I'm a linear thinker. I, I hate it. I'd like to challenge it. I can't, but I live my life. I wake up in the morning and there's an alarm and I go to a class and like, like, that's the way it is. Like, that's, I don't like it, but it is what it is. But I would counter that point. By, so the, again, it's the same idea. We learn from what we experience from the past. For us to get to the next step, if we don't use history, we would have to have some sort of of, of paradigm shift that is otherworldly. But I mean, let's be real. You and I probably both agree that that's going to be required. Well, I get that. So I'm sorry. When I talk otherworldly, what are we talking about here? Like a, a, new, a new messiah or an alien invasion or a zombie apocalypse? Like, I mean, is that is that what it is? Because basically humans would have nothing to talk about if they did not talk about the past. A physicist is learning about physicists of the past before they start to learn and then they I, – I won't pretend to know what a physicist does. But super awesome scientific things and create new theories, but they have to know what's come before them first, right? Same thing with a sociologist, same thing with a biologist and so on and so forth. So again, even a musician knows nothing. A musician does not born one day and able to write a sonata. And I get there are some geniuses there, but those geniuses only exist because they were introduced to something before that. But very specifically for us and our mission to even conceptualize and imagine, let alone in the real world, try to come up with tactics and strategies for how to achieve it. How does 
analyzing the history of the state help us get to that point of post-state society? And specifically, I even argue that our conversation on human nature even was like a waste of time. Yes, we need to have it in the class. And yes, it was fine for the podcast. But we can't even make any conclusions anyway, short of, hey, guys, we don't really have an answer. So all of you out there that are going to say that anarchist society would never work because human beings are greedy and etc. Like, that's not true. That's really all we're doing with that discussion. Because the rest is irrelevant. Is the history of the state, this whole pyramid thing I did, and what I'm now not going to do the next episode, get us through, like, the nation state? Like, yeah, I mean, listeners, that was our plan. We were going to go through Rome and maybe do a little Middle Age crap and then talk about some revolutions in France and the United States and establish what a nation state was. And that, that was something we were thinking about doing. We're, I don't know. Is that fruitful? I don't know that it is. I'm not saying that it is. We don't need to. I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like it is, but that's a result of me not understanding how it is. So that doesn't mean that it's not. Well, obviously, the more modern it gets, the much more nuanced and detailed it gets, and, and we can start making more concrete statements. It's hard to make concrete statements about when we're talking about our Egyptian ditch digger versus our Egyptian olive trader or whatever we were talking about, because we just don't know. When we're talking about how France specifically established France, like we're French, here's our new national anthem and here's a metric system and here's all this other shit that's making us super French right now during this revolutionary period, we've got loads of sources on that. But does that help us? So my, But I, does that help us with this project? I don't know. Because that's even one of my complaints with Marxism is that the Marxist conception of history, starting with primitive communism and blah, 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 up to capitalism, going through capitalism and then ending up in communism. Once you learn that, your mind gets programmed into this way that you're unable to think of anything except for, in my opinion, regression. Because you're like, okay, well, we're going to somehow go – by going forward, we're going to go back to primitive – So, to yeah, communism. here's the primitive anarchist – like, right, that's yeah. the critique, right? That we all want exactly. to go back to some sort of romanticized past where we were whatever. We were better. We Which were better. I get, like, isn't the argument of Marxism, nor is it the argument of primitive communism. But I feel like many people don't have the ability to see outside – of some sort of regression. It's really hard for us to realize how we could get to a stateless society or we could get to a communist society, which now I think about it, those are the same things, but whatever, some kind of Marxist conception of the future without a regression in technology, etc. I can't even do that. I don't know how that would be possible. We have like the accelerationist manifesto and like that kind of stuff where they think we should just like it's blow possible it yeah blow it up i mean yeah like like let climate change do its thing and let the survivors right like rethink what society should be like fine like i i get that like and, and maybe that's that otherworldly event but then all of a sudden then what's the point of any of this then we go back to just teaching resistance to revolution strictly from the lens of scotch paul and become structuralists which like you and i both agreed in the beginning like even though we might agree with that i'm incapable of living my life that way because i'm not just gonna roll over and like die i can't do that Waiting, waiting for like Haley's Comet or something to smash it. Yeah, or waiting for the global powers to do something that results in a massive change in society or right. something. Like I'm incapable of doing that. Right. No, I get it. I get it. And like I said, I mean, there's no specific pass forward. Obviously, as, a, as, as somebody that like teaches history, I'm trying to like whatever. Contest, contest, context. You can't understand something unless you understand where it came from. Is that necessary for this project? I, I don't know that it is. Me neither. I don't know. Um, You know. I don't know that it really is. Maybe it could do more harm than good. Like you said, maybe then we'll get stuck uh, just like we always learned in Resistance to Revolution that revolutions repeat, keep repeating the same mistakes of the past, right? It, they become less revolutionary and more just like coups where the top of the pyramid changes and not much else does, right? Like, and I have two fears. One is for our students. 
because they don't know like the history of the state or the debates on human nature, like specifically or any of those things. So if we give them that knowledge, then they're going to get stuck. Like you just said, that's one fear. The other fear is for you and I, because we already have all that. How do we transcend and escape that way of thinking? I don't know the answer to that either. I don't know. Might be the topic of the next episode. I think we call it a wrap here. All right, so we will bring this episode to an end and continue this conversation later in our next episode. You can get with us at revolutionandideology.com. If you want to contact us, you can do so at hello at revolutionandideology.com. Until next time, I'm Nick Lee. I'm Jared. Talk to you guys later.